All right, believe it or not, I'm not going to say James. I'm going to say Lamentations. All right? And that means we're going to the Old Testament. And you may say, well, how do I find a book like that? You, you start with Psalms, which is the biggest one, the easiest one to perhaps find, and start working your way toward the New Testament. You'll come across Ecclesiastes, maybe Isaiah definitely, as you go. There's a big book called Isaiah. Then you find Jeremiah, and that's a big book too. And Jeremiah will have some 50 chapters in it, 52, I believe, exactly. And then you turn the page, and you're in... Lamentations. What do you think? That's on page 1,280, well, 91 for me. So if that helps, we're going to chapter 3. Or just push a button on your iPad. You can get there quicker. Lamentations 3. Let's start in verse uh, 21 today. I'm going to read to you 21 through 29. Now, this is where we're going to be for this month. We're not going word for word through the book of Lamentations. There's five chapters here. We're not even going to go, per se, chapter by chapter. We're going to focus in the center and then build around it. Does that make sense? Because we're going to the center of the book, and we're going to uh, express what is stated there, and then we're going to investigate that from different angles as we go through our study in this month. And so, here in verse number 21, chapter 3, you found it? Oh, good. Follow along as I read. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, or mercy, indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Now, a couple of things pop out here. Obviously, you recognize a couple of those verses. Especially that phrase, great is thy faithfulness. We have a whole song written from that phrase, and we enjoy singing that song very much. Also, I like the fact, the phrase, they are new every morning. I think of that every morning. When I wake up, I think, wow, a new day the Lord has made. It's His mercy. Every single day, it's like something fresh. And I I think of that so often. We're going to focus on verse 24. Look at that verse again with me for a moment, and then we'll have a word of prayer. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The reading of the New American Standard Version there. Heavenly Father, we have a passage in front of us that has some familiar aspects to it, and yet in a book that's not very familiar to us. And as we put these thoughts together here this morning, we pray that you would draw us so close to your throne that we may see who you are. We have been taught for so long about our need to have faith. And now we're going to spend time talking about the one 
in whom we have our faith. And it's important for us to see some things. And they are going to be incredible sights for us in this book. And I just pray, Lord, that you use it in our hearts. Draw us to that understanding of you that brings you glory and does us great good. And I thank you, Lord, for the, the route you're taking us on and the things you're bringing us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope. That's a great word, isn't it? Such an easy word. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about hope. Well, we're going to talk a lot about hope, to tell the truth, if I just had to say that. Yakal is the Hebrew word for hope. You say, well, what's, what's that all about? It comes from the root word, wait. How easy is that word for you? Most people don't, don't find that a comfortable word. The word wait. It comes also with the implications of, you won't believe this one, be patient. Aha! Isn't that an interesting thing? It comes with that. Hope, stay, trust, wait. That's your word. Now, there is another Hebrew word, by the way. That's the one you're going to find, the one I just expressed in verse 24. Therefore, I have hope in him. If you go down to verse number 29, where it says, perhaps there is hope. The New American Standard reads it that way. Perhaps there is hope. There's a different word there. And I think, well, that's very interesting. Tikvah is the word. And I said, well, what's, why, why is it different? Why didn't he use the same word? If we were studying it in Greek, it would be the same word. And that would make life so much easier for us. But he changes our words when he gets down to that second one. And that is the one that's actually translated into the, the Greek word I'm used to, elpis. Elpis is a great little word called confident expectation. That is definitely a good definition for hope. Confident expectation. We, in good old-fashioned American language, use the word hope like, well, maybe. I hope so, right? We, we kind of think, it might happen, and that's where I'm, I'm wishing, like when we're watching the football games yesterday, and you're at halftime and you say, boy, this is a close one. I hope it comes out okay because we don't know. We, we, we live without knowing the future. We don't know what's going to happen. The word in the Greek, elpis, means I have a confident expectation. That means it's not a maybe to me. What's great is it's the way the Lord has said it. This will happen. So this is my hope. This is my confident expectation. He has never failed on his word. And he never will. That's the beautiful thing we have as believers in Christ. We have hope. We have a hope. Every word he has said he will do. That's my confident expectation. And I will never be disappointed. And neither will you when you trust in his word. That's guaranteed. So this is a word that I find in verse 25. He says, perhaps there is hope. I say, well, that's an interesting thing to say there. Why, would, why wouldn't you be, why, why would you say perhaps we have confident expectation? That kind of kicked the air out of it to me to say it that way. It's like perhaps. What do you mean perhaps? 
But I want to show you something I think is very, very, very interesting. I, I found this curiosity. I'd never seen it before. And when I go into text, I'd start digging up things, and, and I come across some things, and I say, wow, that's an amazing thing. If we were reading today from the Greek Septuagint, right, that's when they took the Old Testament Hebrew, and after the captivity period with Babylon, they came back to the land, but they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. <laughs> they had been taught to speak other languages by the Babylonians. So your kids grew up in Babylonian school. You know, and they spoke Aramaic and other things, but they didn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't read Hebrew. They came back to the land, and here all the Hebrew scriptures are there, and they didn't know how to read them. And over the course of time, the scholars got together and said, well, either we teach them all how to read this language, Hebrew, or we translate all of the scripture into the language they can read. So that was their choice, and they started to translate into Greek, which everybody was working well with Greek, the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. All right? Now, what is very curious about this is that I pulled that out because I love working with Greek, and Old Testament Greek is a lot of fun. And I pulled out Lamentations chapter 3, and I'm working through that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that word hope in the Greek. I'm looking for elpis, elpis, elpis. That's what I was hoping I'd find all the way through. And so... I started this, and I started working my way up to verse 21, and I see this phrase, and then I go into verse 22, and it's not there. I said, wait a minute. I'm on my software program. It's always right, isn't it? Computer stuff should be right. So chapter 3, verse 22 is not there. And I said, that, that's not right. So I looked for 24. It's not there. 25. Guess what? It's there. I said, wait a minute. You're missing three verses, 22, 23, and 24. They're not even on the page. So that, that's got to be something wrong. So I go to my bookshelf, and I've got a real old dusty set of Septuagint on the bottom shelf. All right, that's what software does for you, too. Your books get dirty. So I pull off the old set, and I start looking in there, and I get to Lamentations, pull it out, and I start going down through it. Verse 20, verse 21. No 22, no 23, no 24. And I said, what have they done? It is missing something. Look at the verses that I'm just referring to that are missing in the Septuagint. 22. What's it say? The Lord's loving kindness and deeds never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. None of those words are in the Septuagint. None of them. They're missing. Missing. Matter of fact, I went to verse number 21 and I said, Well, okay, at least I should find the word hope in there. And it's not even in the Septuagint either. In the verse they spelled out, it says this, and I'll read it to you. I will arrange this in my heart because I am remaining under this thing. I say, what is that? He says, literally, I'm going to arrange my soul, my heart, because I am under the suffering from sin, and it's not going away. That's how you translate verse 21. And there is what missing? 
hope. There is no hope in that phrase. Literally, there is no hope in that phrase. There is no hope in the text. And you say, okay, pastor, let's just skip that Septuagint today. Let's just go on. It doesn't help me at all. And that's when I say, bingo. It doesn't help you at all. That's what hopelessness looks like. You take the Lord out of the center of the praise, and you have nothing. You have nothing. You take Him out of the middle, and there is no hope. That's the middle. Verse 22, 23, and 24. That's the middle of it all. That's what everything is centered on in this whole incredible book. And the old Septuagint left the hope out of it altogether. You say, okay, well that's kind of sad. Why did they do that? I don't know. I haven't figured that out. Why did they do that? Why do they read this book every single year in the month of July or August on the memorial of the fall of Jerusalem and read it without any hope in the middle? They don't know their Savior. They don't know their Savior. And the text was written to leave him out. You say, that's terrible, Pastor. That is absolutely terrible. All the precious things that could be said about the Lord's character and the Lord's actions that bring us hope, His compassion, His loving kindness, His mercy, His faithfulness to us, every single morning, He's my portion. He is what makes my soul say... I have hope. Every single action, every single character trait about him that brings us hope is missing in that text. It's the only passage in the whole book of Lamentation that gives us cause to smile, folks. It gives us cause to take a deep breath for once. It gives us cause to look at all the pain and all the suffering of sin and still says, because the Lord's in the middle of it, I still have hope. And that's missing. That's missing. Look at just the value of the verse. Verse number 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. You who have a King James Version, where's your hope in that verse? What's the last two words? In Him. Most translations say that. Some say on Him. Some say I wait for Him. But it's always Him. It's all about Him. If you take Him out of there, what do you have? No hope. Do you see it? Without Him, you have no hope. Let me, let me illustrate this from a few overviews of the magnificent book in front of you. I love the book of Lamentations. It is not known very well by some, but it is a fascinating book. And let me try to express it to you here this morning. Uh, let's start with, well, three views, okay? The first view is going to be the view from the life of the prophet who wrote it. The second, from the writing of the prophet who wrote it. And the third, from the expressions of the prophet who wrote it. So we're going to talk about his life and his writing and his expressions. And I think this is going to bring you to a greater appreciation of what we're seeing here today. This is Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is the author of this book. I'm very well convinced of that. Tradition puts Jeremiah as the writer of this book. Now, if you like tradition or if you don't like tradition, that's what traditionally they say. Jeremiah wrote this book. Some translations actually have it attached to the book of Jeremiah, by the way. Some very old, old translations didn't put a, a chapter between Jeremiah and Lamentations. They just put them right together as one book. They put Lamentations on the very end of it. Now, if at this point you trust the Septuagint, I'll tell you what their first verse says. The first verse of the Septuagint says this, and it's not in your text. It says, And it came to pass after Israel was taken captive, and Jerusalem made desolate, Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem, and said... And then verse 1 starts in your text. So they added that to qualify this book. Now, it's very interesting that there are even some, according to tradition, who said that Jeremiah was found on a ledge in some sort of a, a place to sit and watch as the city was burning in front of him as he wrote this particular lamentation. And that ledge later was identified by name as Golgotha. I said, hmm, what took place there? The crucifixion of Christ. That's what they say. All right. What does his life look like? There are some prophets you would not want to wear their sandals. Jeremiah was one of them. We called him the weeping prophet. He was a priest which put him in pretty good position to start with, that God commanded him to stay unmarried his entire life. He protested at first when God called him. He says, I'm still too young, Lord. I, I'm too young. And the Lord said, no, you're not. There's the answer. <laughs> no, you're not. I put you to work. God answered him and assured him that he had chosen him even before he was born. For this task. There's some wonderful verses that you might recognize. He attempted to find an honest man in Jerusalem and couldn't find him. He preached uh, constantly that Judah would return to God. He denounced its sin. He was persecuted by it. Even his family participated in persecuting him. His hometown people persecuted him. The religious world as a whole persecuted him. This poor guy spent more time in pits and in prisons than you'll find of most prophets. Because he kept getting put someplace, and many times they expected him to die in those spots. To be put in a pit was a terrible situation. You've heard it in the Psalms and stuff. I've been in a pit, a miry clay, and all these kind of things. You were in a bad spot if you were in a pit. It was deep enough to be a well, and usually was dry. And they put you down in this well, and they put a rock over the top, but that didn't seal out the water. And the next time it rained, it filled up. And you were in trouble. And that's generally the way the pit worked. And many of the writers would talk about that. Jeremiah experienced it very literally. He was in that pit. In several occasions, we have him being persecuted. He listed... Judah's sins over and over and over again. They worshiped the Queen of Heaven. He confronted them on that. 
They sacrificed their own children to gods. He confronted them on that. They were full of idolatry, and they were full of murder. And he had to write to them about those things. He warned them about the Babylonian captivity. They did not believe him. He said Jerusalem would be surrounded. They told him he was crazy. They said they were, they were going to use, the enemy's going to use their own trees against you to ramp them up to the side of your, your walls and use them for battering rams. And they laughed at him. He said the temple was going to be destroyed and they couldn't believe that. He said, your animals are going to be corpses. You're, you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And he wept over it. And when he presented this all to King Jehoiakim, he sat in front of his fireplace, cutting it with his knife and throwing it in the flames. And God said to Jeremiah, go write it again. And he went back and had to rewrite the whole thing one more time. It's a long book. It's a tough book to read. He threatened to resign at one point, and God wouldn't take his notice. He uh, was ordered to buy a field by God, even though he was about to be taken into captivity. He was freed by Nebuchadnezzar. He was given a job. Stay with my new governor. His name was Gedaliah. He says, stay with Gedaliah and help him. Nebuchadnezzar took everybody else away. So there's a handful of people there. Gedaliah is a man that appears to be a godly kind of man. Jeremiah is helping him all he can. And Gedaliah was assassinated. And the new guy that came to to be the the, uh, leader, Johanan, said, well, we're not staying here. We're going to Egypt. And Jeremiah said, no, 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 don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Bad place to go. God doesn't want you to go there. He says, well, we're going. And they kidnapped him and took him there. We never heard from Jeremiah again. Is that a tough life? This is the guy who sat over there and watched the city in flames and the temple come down to the ground as they dismantled it piece by piece. He's the one that watched good King Josiah get killed in battle and said, oh, that's the end of the great kings. And that was true enough, because everyone who came after him were terrible leaders, very ungodly men, and Jeremiah had to work with them. Would you trade places with that guy? Do you know what? He is the one who said, the Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope. That's the same man. You say, well, how can you say that, Jeremiah? You had a terrible, terrible life. Look at his writings. Look at his writings. I've told you before, Lamentations is a remarkable book. I want to give you an impression about uh, this book that maybe, maybe will help you appreciate it too. If you understand Michelangelo to art, then you understand Lamentation to Scripture. It is a masterpiece. It is an absolute masterpiece in literature. First note this, it's a lament. You can tell by the title. A lament is a dirge. You know what a dirge is? It's a funeral song. It's a funeral song. That's not a happy number. It's a lament. You're crying as you write this. In Hebrew, it's poetry. 
In poetry, it's a song. In history, it's the recording of the burning of a city. In emotion, it reaches its highest and its lowest expression that words can be used to express the absolute worst experience a person can live through and write about. In theology, it records the consequences of sin in black and white. In terms, it uses a vivid imagery to capture our thoughts. You may think that writing any song would be challenging. I don't know if you're the kind who've ever been inspired to write a song. We need more Christmas songs, by the way. You can write a Christmas song still two months to go. We're singing. You may say, well, that'd be a hard challenge. Try this. Write a funeral song about a real event you're seeing with your own eyes. Put in every expression of your heart and make it theologically sound and make sure it's poetry. Would you be challenged by that? That's an incredible event to try to record. But you know what? It gets even better. These five chapters in front of you are 22 verses long. Well, verse chapter 1 is, chapter 2 is, chapter 3 is 66 verses long, chapter 4 is 22 verses long, chapter 5 is 22 verses long. You say, okay, what's that mean? Well, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet if you take seen and sheen and put them together as one. They do that. So, Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters. If you're going to write a poem that's an acrostic, you would start the first word of every stanza with the first letter of the alphabet and then the second letter of the alphabet and third letter, and you follow the sequence all the way through 22 times. The alphabet is in order, first word of every phrase. Would that add to the complication of writing such a piece? He does it in chapter 1. He does it in chapter 2. And when he gets to chapter 3, the first three verses are the first letter. The second three verses are the second letter. The next three verses are the third letter. He goes in groups of three all the way through the alphabet, choosing a word to correspond to that alphabet to express the grief of his heart as he's watching the city burn in front of him, knowing that that's the consequence of sin. I say, wow! Jeremiah, did you have too much time on your hand? Why would you go through such extent to, to write this, all this alphabetical stuff? Why would you add that corresponding letter to letter and thought to thought? Why do you do this? And then make it a poem that can be sung. Use all the imagery you can, Jeremiah. The greatest expression of your emotion. Capture the true history. Capture the true reason why you're at it and write it out in the alphabetical way. Was he just being clever? I don't think he found much enjoyment in that. Acrostics were not uncommon in Old Testament poetry. Some of the Psalms are that way, by the way. But the nature of this was that it was meant to be memorized. It was for educational purposes. 
that they wrote it out in an acrostic way so that you can memorize it. And why do you want to memorize it? So that you learn it. And why must you learn it? So you do not repeat it. You've heard the old phrase, those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat it. And this was the lesson. Jeremiah couldn't change the fact there were ashes on the ground. But he could warn the next generation who read that letter, who memorized that letter, who lived out that letter to avoid what just happened. So he put it in a way they could memorize it. And I said, wow, wow. Jeremiah lived in the days of the heavyweight prophets. They call them major prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, those are the four biggies. If you take the five books that they wrote, which was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you put into your search the word hope. You will find it said 18 times. In all those chapters represented by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel... 18 times. And I said, well, that's interesting. How many times does Isaiah talk about hope? Five. How many times does Ezekiel talk about hope? Three. How many times does Daniel talk about hope? Zero. So, whoa! Who's talking more about hope of the heavy prophets? Jeremiah. And where do you think the concentration is? Lamentations, chapter 3. The same verse is cut out of the Septuagint. Is the bulk of the hope that Jeremiah held to. And it wasn't centered on that city. And it wasn't centered on that temple. And it wasn't centered on anything but the God who is faithful. And he said he is faithful as that city came down in ashes. And he is faithful the day after when it was just smoke. And he was faithful when Jeremiah was carried off into captivity because God didn't change. That's why he says, that's why my hope is in him. Anytime we put our hope in anything else, folks, I hate to say this, it's going to come down in ashes. Because nothing else has the permanent quality of our Savior's character and of His actions on our behalf and His promises that He's given to us. Nothing else holds true. It's God's Word that is eternal, and it's our God who is eternal, and it's not the things of this world. Too many times we put our emphasis and our attention and our hope, I hate to say it, but we anchor our hope to things that will not last. This is Jeremiah standing there. Ten times in his writing, he brought it up. And most of them are right here in chapter number three. Let me read to you a few other verses you'll find in Jeremiah's writings. Just listen to them for a minute. First time hope is ever mentioned in Jeremiah's writing is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then he says again in chapter 31, verse 17, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. 
as we begin to walk through Lamentations with this prophet, we're going to find him in a terrible, terrible condition. God is telling him there's hope. There's hope. But look what he says in chapter 3, verse 18. My strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. So, well, that doesn't sound like a guy who's got his grip on hope very well. What's going on here? Well, you've seen a bit of his life, and you've seen a bit of his writing, but let's talk about the expressions that this prophet gives to us. Let's start here in chapter 3 and start with verse 1. As a prophet, you can understand that he had the right to record his message against the people in pronouns like you, right? You have sinned. You have done this. They have done this. They have done this. As a prophet, he could have stood back and said, ah, 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 and pointed the finger all the way around the room. That's what Jeremiah's position would lead him to do. It wasn't Jeremiah's fault that the people sinned. That they had sinned like they did. He didn't promote the idolatry. He didn't promote the worship of the Queen of Heaven. He didn't promote this idea of sacrificing your children to some unknown God. He didn't do that. And you say, Jeremiah, you're free from all this stuff. You didn't act rebelliously to the Lord. You didn't stiffen your neck. You didn't do all that. They did it. And as a prophet, you can write, You sinned! You deserve the punishment! But when I take you to chapter 3, I want you to notice the pronoun, I. Jeremiah puts on their sandals and stands in their spot. It's an amazing view. Watch what he says. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me. And made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all day long. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, He shut out my prayers. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in a secret place. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent His bow and He sent me as a target for His arrow. He has made his arrows, the arrows of his quiver, to enter into my inward parts. He has made me a laughing stock to all my people, their mocking song all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished. And so is my hope from the Lord. Wow, sit with them for a minute. The first chapter, he talked about Jerusalem, and it said, she, she, she. Second chapter, he says, they, they deserved it. They did this, they did this. Gets to chapter 3, and he says, and I'm destroyed. 
I'm destroyed. I'm destroyed. If that was all there was to the story, verse 19 and 20, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness, surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. If that's all there was to this, we'd go home and we'd be the most depressed people on this planet. Watch though as he lifts his head. As he lifts his head. Once, You are no longer the subject of attention, folks. (laughs) And you put the Lord in the center of your thoughts. Everything takes on a different view. So often, we can say those very words, perhaps, in our own little way, chapter 3, 1 through 20. We say, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. But the minute you say, ah, but let's look at the Lord, everything changes. Everything changes. Let's look at it real quickly here. This I recall to mind, verse 21. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness and deeds never cease, and it hasn't today, and it never will. His compassions never fail, you see. They are new every morning. Every morning. Every morning. They are new because He is faithful, and great is His faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good to wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Can you see it now? The Lord in His very love and faithfulness will not and cannot let us go on sinning. Do you hear it? The Lord is so faithful to us that He will not let us stay there. George Mueller said it this way, The Lord in His very love and faithfulness will not and cannot let us go in backsliding, but He will visit us with stripes to bring us back to Himself. That's Lamentations. Far too often we interpret wrath, punishment, difficulty, suffering as indications that the Lord must hate us. We lose hope because we have misplaced it. Hope is not found in your circumstances. And hope is not found in your successes. And hope is not found in your failures. Hope has only one middle place. And that is the Lord. That's where the Lord is. That is why you can smile in your tears. And you've been there. That is why you can breathe when all the breath has been kicked out of you. That that is why you find purpose in pain and suffering that comes from sin. Because you know what the Hebrew writer said too. The Lord loves His children and those whom He loves. He chastises. He takes us down a road, and it's not a pretty road. It's a hard road. It's a tough road to watch everything around you burn. But the Lord's not afraid to take you there. He's not afraid to take His people there. Because He knows where the hope lies, for you and for me. And it's in Him, and in who He is, and in what He does. That's where we need to anchor our hope. That's why Jeremiah could say, He's my portion in Him 
I have my hope. I have my hope. So we're going to address this for the rest of the month, all right? You don't mind? You have no choice. But I don't know. Maybe at this point in your life you're struggling with something. Maybe you've been struggling with sin and you thought that was a pretty good thing you've been doing. And all the while, the Lord has been challenging you. He's been rebuking you. He's been correcting you. And maybe you're as frustrated as can be. Hitting your head against the wall, getting nowhere. Finding your prayers are not answered. Finding things around you going to ashes. And you say, this is terrible. The Lord must hate me. Uh-uh. The Lord loves you, folks. And He's not going to leave you there. He's going to do that. That brings you to love Him and walk with Him and trust Him and anchor your hope in Him and Him alone. That's a heavy road to learn. But it's a good road to be on. I want to ask you just one question and you answer it in your heart. Today, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Can you say what Jeremiah said? The Lord is my portion, therefore, my soul says, I have hope in Him. Heavenly Father, when we come to a passage like this, we have to see You. Your faithfulness, Your mercy, Your compassion. We have to see that. If we look at anything else, we're going to miss the whole point. If that's left out of our thoughts, if it's left out of our page, if it's left out of our chapter, we have nothing. But Lord, we need you. And I pray, Lord, that these words that we study from this book might drive us to who you are, what you are, where you are. That we might anchor our hope in you and you alone. Do your work in our hearts for each of us need it. May this be an encouraging time. May we sit with the prophet and and even smile up through our tears and say, this is my hope. We pray you bless our study in Jesus' name. Amen.